0: If you're around and you work hard and you do a good job, it's amazing how magically those opportunities somehow present themselves to you once you're there.
1: Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 13, and today's guest is TV and radio sports personality Bob Wischusen. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and today's guest is Bob Wischusen. Bob has been the radio play-by-play voice for the New York Jets since 2002 and since he joined ESPN in 2005, he's been a television play-by-play voice for some of ESPN's college basketball and football broadcasts. Bob, welcome to the show.
0: I'm glad to be here.
1: Thank. First, let me thank you uh, for getting off the golf course and uh, joining <laughs> me uh, today. No problem. I have to admit that I'm a bit nervous interviewing a media personality. Oh, God, please. <laughs> this is your business, but you know, it's obviously a hobby for me. But uh, we're recording uh, today, May 11th, uh, in the midst of uh, the coronavirus, and, and you being a sports guy, uh, maybe you have a crystal ball. Uh, what are you thinking we're going to be seeing anytime uh, in the near term here with related to sports?
0: Yeah, all I can say is what I'm hoping we'll see. And that is rapidly expanded testing and the ability to get to the point where you can test athletes and teams um, with the same frequency, if not more. So you test everybody else. I, I don't know, short of waiting for, you know, therapies or vaccines that there's any other way to do it. You know, the MMA stuff that happened over the weekend and seemingly successfully so, probably a good sign. Uh, PGA Tour, NASCAR, things like that are going to get started. So hopefully that creates a little bit of a blueprint here for what the other leagues can do.
1: Yeah, I think so. It's really incredible, you know, being a big sports fan and and having a lot of friends that are sports fans. It's really incredible. You know, we we know how important uh, sports can be, but not having it. And and certainly there's you know tons of people suffering with with jobs and all. But, you know, certainly sports has been an opportunity for people to take their mind off of of issues that they have. And not having that as a go to has made this even more significantly a a problem.
0: Yeah. And it's I mean, it's a 30 billion dollar industry. You know we shouldn't forget that either. It's the candy store. That's why I got into it. I love it for that reason. I mean, it's not real life. It's it's fun. Uh, But the people that right now that don't think it's a candy store, that don't think it's fun, are the people that operate bars and restaurants that you know butt right up against stadiums. You know the the stadium workers themselves, the vendors, the people that sell the food, the people that sell the souvenirs, the people that you know take the tickets and the security guys and You know, all the hotels that run their businesses in and around stadiums, all the people whose jobs are, you know, based on running like lacrosse tournaments, little league tournaments, soccer tournaments, youth sports. There's a huge segment of the population that owes a big portion, if not all, of what they do to sports running as a business like any other business. So, yeah, I mean, there's a very practical need to get it back, too. So that people can go back to work and earn a living. And, um, you know, besides the fact that we just need the distraction, you know, I mean, it's 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 the number one way that a lot of us, you know, escape real life and do something fun. And right now, you know, we're just looking for anything that we can concentrate on and talk about that isn't this that isn't this this disease.
1: Yeah, that's the truth. I was reading an article in the uh, Daily News today and uh, they had a whole story about the vendors around Yankee Stadium and the bar owners and and hit exactly the points that uh, you just talked about. So, you know, hopefully uh, I know Major League Baseball was uh, supposedly doing something with their owners today and uh, you know, hopefully they'll be able to come up with uh, something that'll be safe for uh, for the players and all the people associated with the sport. So, we shall see. Let's take a step back. You're a jersey guy, right? I am. Talk about growing up in New Jersey. Uh, I know you went to Union Catholic. Uh, Give us, uh, you know, what was it like in the Wishusen House?
0: You know, it was kind of standard, middle class, living in the suburbs of New York City, growing up, I'm the oldest of four kids. And so always something going on and, you know, playing sports, playing in the backyard, playing in the front yard, playing in the schoolyard. And, um, you know, my love of sports was, you know, kind of natural. I, You know, I, I grew up in... You know, kind of a child of the 80s, um, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, it was a fun time to be a New York sports fan. And, you know, close enough to New York being in Union County where, I mean, everybody around us considers ourselves part of the New York metropolitan area. So, you know, you've got nine pro sports teams here. It wasn't hard to find things to watch on TV or listen to on the radio. And, um, you know, kind of grew up a sports fan in the shadow of New York City.
1: What, was, uh, you, what were your teams? What are your teams? You, know, you mentioned nine professional sports teams, all local, uh, are you guys?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the only teams, it's funny, my dad was not a crazy sports fan. So I didn't grow up in one of those households where I had a dad who was like a lunatic, you know, giant fan, and I had to pick the giants and hate everybody else. Or a dad who was a lunatic Mets fan, so I had to hate the Yankees. You know, we were football fans. We were baseball fans. And when I was growing up, The Yankees and Mets never played each other. The Giants and Jets rarely, if ever, played each other. And most years, if not all four of them were bad, at least three of the four were bad. So it wasn't (laughs) like you had to sit here and worry about, like, the Giants and Jets meeting in the Super Bowl or the Yankees and Mets meeting in the World Series. Now, as I got older, I gravitated towards teams. I am definitely in – I was always a Rangers fan. You know, I always picked one hockey team. You could not be a Ranger and Islander and Devil fan because they all played in the same division. They played each other, and there were real rivalries. You know, you couldn't be a Knicks-Nets fan. They played against each other in the same division. But it was like, you know, with the Giants and Jets and Yankees and Mets, not only being in in different divisions, but different conferences, different leagues all together in baseball. You know, so I kind of rooted for both teams when I was a little kid. Nobody told me I wasn't supposed to. But now I'm Mets, Jets. Knicks Rangers like that's my those are kind of my core four uh, pro teams so yeah that's uh, kind of the the standard
1: yeah that's kind of the standard I guess Mets Jets Knicks Rangers Um, I was a little bit of an oddball and because in many ways I'm a Giants fan and Mets and Knicks and Rangers and and it's funny you 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 talk about you know your upbringing mine was was a bit different my dad was an old Brooklyn Dodgers fan and when the Dodgers left Brooklyn he could not root for the Yankees sure. and kind of just waited around until the Mets showed up and became a super Mets fan. And as did I, and, and my son uh, now, so we've had uh, lots of pain, but uh, it, it's still, uh, we still always loved going out to uh, the old Shea and, and now to city. So you, you grew up in, in Union County, you go to Union Catholic high school uh, and then you go off to Boston college. Uh, how did you choose Boston college?
0: I don't know. I really—I mean, it was a good school. You know, like you're uh, 17, 18 years old. You have no idea what you're doing, and they kind of told you going from a Catholic high school. These were the good schools. Okay, great. So I went to Boston College. You know, the the benefit of going there was it was in a big city, and it had a really good student radio station. And so I joined up with that as soon as I got there. And being near a big city, it gives you internship opportunities. So, you know, the guys that go to Syracuse obviously have a big leg up on – The rest of us that want to get into this business based on the fact that they're at like kind of the school and the program at the school to go to, we didn't have a fragment or a fraction of the program at BC that they have at Syracuse. But the advantage that we had being at BC was you're in Boston. I mean, you're in a top five, top six media market, and you have the ability to do a lot of internships. And so I did a couple there and did one back here at WFAN in New York in the summertime before my senior year of college. and being someone who spent basically their entire life close to big cities it did give me an opportunity to you know to have those internships be kind of the entree to getting a job so you know everybody's got a different story about kind of how they you know found their way into our business if they do find their way into our business and and mine was basically not going to a school in any way known for its communications program but going to a school that was in a city that afforded the opportunity then to do internships that became, you know, how I got
1: a job. Right. And, and as you grew up as a sports fan, did you sit and, and watch these games and say, geez, I really want to be Marv Albert or I want to be, you know, any of the, you know, the top echelon play-by-play guys?
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny when I was in high school, WFAN came on the air. Right. And so, if you would have asked me in 1987, 1988, 1989, what would you want to do for a living, my thought would be, how great would it be to be a sports talk show host? And that's really what I was for my first 10, 15 years of being in the business. I mean, I was, you know, someone that kind of went out and covered events, did pre and post game shows, but the lion's share of what I did was I did talk shows. And um, you know, I, I morphed into play-by-play a little bit more. Some of those opportunities you know just the visibility of being on FAN gave me some local play-by-play opportunities and i started to realize that you know being at the game could be a lot more fun than being the guy back in the studio waiting for the game to be over to then talk about the game i mean we're we all get into this in the first place because we want to be at the game and so yeah doing play-by-play has always been in my blood as well but i mean i could go back to doing talk shows you know they're they're fun what's what could be more fun sitting around talking sports with some of your buddies and that's You know, it's kind of the the DNA of what those shows are all about. So, you know, when when I was a kid, I didn't really necessarily have that singular focus. It was just I knew I wanted to be around sports. And I knew I was not nearly a good enough athlete to play them, at least not past high school. So, you know, I had a a pretty early idea that if I was going to be involved in sports, it was going to have to be as a broadcaster in one way, shape or form. And, you know, that's why I mean, the, the second day my freshman year, I hadn't even turned 18 yet. Uh, When I was in college, I went straight to the student radio station and said, I want to do this. I want to I want to be a part of your sports
1: program here. And that, you know, was kind of the jumping off point. Right. How did you land the gig uh, at F.A.N. and and what year was it that you started there? Uh, I was down in
0: Miami right out of college for about two and a half, three years. And so it was literally as the calendar was turning from ninety five to ninety six. I came back and and was at F.A.N. I, I, I had been an intern. And the guy I was working for in Miami, uh, we changed program directors. The new program director was not a particular fan of mine for whatever reason, subjective business. Uh, He didn't like me very much. And so I knew I needed to get out of there and was sending tapes all over the country. But, you know, kind of constantly checking in with my old boss at FAN just as, you know, kind of a mentor role to say, hey, what do you think about this station? What do you think about that station? I have a nibble in Seattle. Somebody in. Cleveland thinks they might be able to use me. And finally, after two or three phone calls of bouncing some of these thoughts off of him, he said, why don't you just come back here? And I said, well, I didn't even know that that was a possibility. He said, yeah, I'll use you. I'll use you part-time. I mean, I, you know, there are going to be weeks where I might have two shifts for you in seven days. There might be weeks I've bet nine shifts for you in seven days. But it should balance out to a decent living, you know, live at home, just get started here. And within six months, I was full-time and had an apartment, you know? So, I mean, it worked out fine, but it really was just kind of his suggestion with me looking to him as the mentor to say, Hey, I'm, I'm sending these tapes all over the country. What do you think about these different radio stations? Him saying, why are you going to go to Seattle or Cleveland? If you really want out of Miami, come back and work for me. And I'll give you what I can. And it just it worked out, you know? And so that, that was, that was how I got back to New York and I've never left.
1: All right. For, for those that are listening that might not know, but WFAN is uh... Uh, one of the, the first, I guess, uh, all sports talk shows in the country, uh, started 1987 here in New York. And, you know, Bob, that's really where I first heard you uh, doing some of those shows. And, um, you know, I had spent a lot of time in the car listening to WFN uh, before that. But what was it like to to work at, you know, the top station, you know, for the particular, you know, uh, category of a uh, genre of, of radio?
0: It was great. It was it's it's kind of hard to explain what the atmosphere there was like, but it was very much felt like the epicenter of New York sports at the time. I mean, there were not a lot of other all sports radio stations around the country. Uh, The major markets had them, but it wasn't like there were 500 of them all over the country. And it was a very rare radio uh, market that had two of them. Now it's almost standard operating procedure. You've got a couple of all sports radio stations in almost every market of the country. That's how popular the format has begun. But, you know, I mean, you you were very well aware that you were at the pinnacle of those stations. You were in the number one media market and you were working for a very influential place. There was no doubt. You know, it was not unusual for trades to get talked about on FAN and then for the teams to go out and execute those trades or try because they heard the fans screaming and yelling that these are the players they wanted, and they knew they could create good PR because Fan was out there, you know, taking the calls and and kind of driving that narrative.
1: Someone on FAN takes credit for the Mike Piazza trade.
0: There's no doubt. I mean, I'll tell you, I don't think Mike Piazza would have been a Met 10 years earlier before FAN was created. I mean, I think the momentum for a trade like that comes from the talk show hosts and particularly mike and the mad dog at the time constantly pushing that button and egging the fans on and the fans calling up and screaming i'm never going to a met game again if they don't go out and get this guy and you know and the the thing that you definitely learn over the years and i learned this at every other place i've been is no matter how many times the people that run the game run the, the teams coach the teams play for the teams work for the teams no matter how much they tell you we don't read we don't listen they all read, and they all listen. So they're hearing it. I mean, you know for a fact that they are hearing what the fans are saying. And um, you were acutely aware that it was a big deal to work there, at least back in the late 90s and early 2000s, kind of in the glory days of that station, when it was a behemoth with Imus in the morning and Mike and Chris in the afternoon and the Mets were doing well. And it was an important place to work. It was definitely a place that you know, got you noticed as a young broadcaster that, that helped me get to other places as well.
1: Right. And so what was the opportunity that presented itself that caused you to leave? Well, the Jets
0: changed hands as a radio property to Madison square garden. I think there was a thought back in like the mid nineties, 95, 96, somewhere in that area, that the garden was going to buy a radio station, take the, the radio rights, which they owned to the Yankees, pull the Rangers and Knicks off of FAN which eventually they did do and maybe get a football team as well and put another radio station on and maybe make it WMSG and go head-to-head with FAN. Mm. The Garden never actually buying a radio station materialized but it did become the kind of quote-unquote MSG radio network where MSG took the radio rights for the Yankees combined them with the Knicks and Rangers, kind of took them in-house and moved them over to 1050 and also took the Jets and I was affiliated with the Jets and I was also being passed over for talk show host jobs at FAN. I I thought I was going to eventually become like a regular day part guy on FAN program director there also wasn't a particular fan of mine. So again, very subjective business. And I just realized, all right, the Jets are going to MSG. I'm getting more into play by play maybe that's where I should look for a job. And the guy at MSG, Mike McCarthy at the time, was very enthusiastic about hiring me. And he brought me over to do like a nightly highlight show on television, continue my affiliation with the Jets. And also I became one of the backup play-by-play guys for the Rangers, which was also, you know, a thrill. So I would do 25, 30 Rangers games a year, then ended up doing some Knicks as well. So, you know, that job kind of being a potpourri of different responsibilities – TV highlights, the Jet affiliation, Nixon Rangers, some ra- mostly radio, some TV, but a decent amount of play-by-play. It just became, a, you know, kind of that next stepping stone to, to move on. And, and you know, I also want to show the guys at FAM that there are other places to work in town. I don't just have to sit here and have you pass me over for jobs, and there are no other alternatives. I mean, there, there are other places to go, and so it worked out.
1: All right. So, you know, one of the themes of uh, the podcast here is, you know, for folks to be able to take things back to their personal life or their business life. So, you know, in your case, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you just laid out a a game plan that says, you know, geez, if you're, you know, the opportunity is not presenting itself, you know, although you might be emotionally, you know, tied uh, at your present, you know, opportunity there, there's the grass is always greener. There's other things out there.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, everybody in our business is always looking for bigger and better, you know? And I mean, I shouldn't say everyone. I'm that way. Uh, it maybe it's a character flaw. I don't know. Because I've never been like a smell the roses guy. I mean, I've definitely had people at different points in my career say to me, man, you should just enjoy the ride. Like, look around, look where you are. You're the radio voice of the jets and you're at ESPN. And yeah. All right, great. I'm at ESPN, but on college football, by anybody's, you know kind of objective not even subjective but objective um analysis I'm probably the number four the number five guy on college football no that's not good enough I want to be the number three guy and then the number two guy and you know I I aspire to bigger and better and if you feel like you've hit a roof somewhere where you can tell the decision makers don't think you're capable of bigger and better don't really have any interest in giving you bigger or better then yeah. I mean, I've always been one to then look outside to see if there's someplace else to go work or bigger and better is a possibility. And so, um, you know, when I was at FAN and the midday show became available and I went in and talked to one of my bosses there and I was, you know, like I've done all these other shifts. I've been here for like five and a half years. Am I at least going to get an audition for that show? He's like, no, you're not getting an audition. We already picked the show. This is who we think is right for it. And I was like, wow, I've been here for nearly six years. I don't even get an audition. It's like, yeah, I just don't think you're right for that. Okay, well, now that's all the signal that I need that I'm not just not right for that. I'm not right for here because if you're not going to consider me for that, you're certainly not going to consider me for bigger than that. So what am I doing? I mean, obviously I feel like I've capped out. And every time I've gotten to a place where I felt like I've hit the ceiling and capped out, and there's no other alternative for me at that place, nowhere else to go I've looked to move on
1: yeah that's good uh, that's great uh, advice. How do you prepare for for a game? You know, I, you know, I, I've again, I've watched sports my entire life um, and always uh, enamored by the preparation of, of guys, you know, and, and lesser to a degree when they're doing one game a week. But, you know, if you're doing Ranger games or you're doing Knicks games or, you know, a, a baseball game, how do guys like you prepare for, especially for somebody that's doing you know, multiple sports at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think you're always constantly preparing
0: just by doing the fun part of watching the games. I mean, I watch college football, I watch the NFL, I watch the NBA, I watch baseball, I watch hockey, I watch because I'm a fan. So in a way, I guess I'm preparing for when the Jets eventually play the Patriots, when I'm watching the Patriots play the Dolphins, and I'm preparing for the Jets to play the Dolphins when I'm watching the Dolphins play the Patriots. But I would watch that game anyway because I'm a fan. So I guess there's just kind of a de facto preparation that goes into being a sports fan. But in terms of actually – you know, the nuts and bolts of putting a chart together. It's a lot of what I call information condensation. It's just that the the sports information departments for colleges, pro teams, whatever, they put together game notes, packages of newspaper articles. Uh, Back in the ancient days of DVDs, they used to send you DVD copies of like their last game or two. So you could pop that into your DVD player and watch it, become more familiar with the team that way. That's particularly helpful in football because football is just, you know, there's so many moving parts in football with so many different guys can get in the game, that familiarity with the personnel can help, but that's basically it. I mean, I'm just doing a lot of reading, a lot of highlighting, and then taking the things that I think are important that I think people might be interested in that I could refer to during the game and writing it down on a big spotter board with all the names and numbers that I've got in front of me when I'm calling the game. And then that's about it. Um, You know, I probably use 10, 15% of that. If it's a blowout, maybe 20 to 25% of what I write down, but you know, most of it is just a security blanket because you're not going to get to it. If the game's good, you actually don't want to be bombarding the viewer or listener with tons of statistical details or filler material. I mean, let, let the game do the talking. But um, but that that's really that's all it is. You're just um, you know, you're trying to take a lot of the info that you get from them and whittle it down.
1: All right. Do you prepare any differently for a game that you're doing that's on TV versus one that's on the radio?
0: yeah tv is a lot more human interest story big picture you know conversation type topics that you prepare radio it's really the nuts and bolts call the game if i start to take the time to tell a whole bunch of personal human interest stories about the players or throw you know a whole boatload of statistics at you the analyst would literally never get a chance to talk because when you're doing radio and it's football I mean, before every play, you're setting the geography. You know, balls on the left hash at the 30-yard line, first and 10 jets. They've got a slot to the left, offset eye right, quarterback under center. Here's the score, play clock down to five. And I'm saying all of those things and have to, Because if you're listening on the radio, you need all that information. Well, if I then followed then the play call up with, oh, and by the way, so-and-so's mom, you know, invented the longer-lasting light bulb, and here's the great story behind that. Well, the analyst, by the time I'm done with that, the next play starting. TV, I don't have to say any of that. I mean, when you turn on the TV now with the way we do graphics, if it's third and seven at the minus 30-yard line with five minutes to go before halftime. Team A's got two timeouts. They're, you know, down 14 to nothing. I mean, all of that information is on the screen. So what am I calling? I mean, I can, I can supplement some of that information. Um, a lot of times I like to give down and distance just to emphasize if it's a big play. You know, if it's third and 11, you know, you'll say that to draw attention to the fact that, whoa, it's third and 11. This could be a big play. But other than that, a lot of it is kind of weaving some of those human interest stories in about the players or engaging the analyst, asking some questions, talking football, because I don't have to do all of that geography. So, you know, the prep is deeper for TV because you're writing a lot more down because a lot more of that has a chance to get on the air.
1: Yeah. It, it's funny when uh, this week uh, SNY was showing the 1969 World Series uh, with the Mets and the I was Orioles. Yep, right? I was watching, and, and my son Evan, who helped uh, you know prep me for this interview with you, he and I were watching the game, and he's just a crazy sports guy. His ability to remember numbers and and remember where he was when he was eight years old, and you know, and somebody hit a home run, we were on the bridge going from Brooklyn to Staten Island, is just nuts. But we're watching the game. And he's like, "Where are the graphics?" I mean, he he knew that there were no graphics right. then, but he's like, "How do I know what's going on?" You know, and you know, literally, and you remember those games. The only graphic they showed was, you know, when a, pl- a player came up, they showed you know batting average and, and home runs and RBIs. They showed the score at the half inning. There was no pitch count. There was, you know, it was nothing. Um, so you know, the the screen is obviously a lot different today than it was <laughs> fifty years ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, even the things that we take for granted, like just the clock and the score being on the screen for like a basketball game or a hockey game. I mean, I'm being a Nick Ranger fan. You know, a lot of times they'll air, like even when you're watching The Last Dance and they're showing all those Nick Bull highlights from the, you know, I mean, this is the mid-90s. This isn't like the mid-70s or the mid-50s. I mean, it's the mid-90s. And the score and the clock weren't on the screen. You were counting on the play-by-play guy to remind you how much time was left you were counting on the tv truck to like insert the clock and then take it back out from time to time um in the last minute of the game they would like you know shoot the clock and crop it and kind of stick it down in the corner of the screen so that you'd know when there's 30 seconds 20 seconds 10 seconds of a close game but if you just turned the game on back in those days you didn't know what the score was or how much time was left until the TV crew put it on the screen or the announcer said it. And it's really not that long ago. I mean, we just kind of take all that information being on the screen now for granted and the crawls along the bottom of the screen with the fantasy highlights going by. And I mean, all that, it's like Bloomberg television. And we're able to consume all that somehow, but yeah, all of the most basic graphics in the world that we take for granted on TV. Now, when we were growing up, we had none of that. I mean, you, I remember having my watch, like a little crappy Casio digital watch with a stopwatch feature on it. And the only two functions on the watch were the time of day and then you could hit a button and it would turn into a stopwatch. And I would play with the stopwatch while I watched games Mm. because that would be my way of if I would start the stopwatch and stop the stopwatch for whistles during like a Nick game on TV, I would be able to look at my watch and at least within, you know, 10, 12 seconds or so, have an idea of how much time was left in a quarter or left in the half um, because all that stuff wasn't on the screen.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm about, I'm guessing, 10 years older, or maybe a little bit less than you. And, you know, it was uh, normal for me to call sports phone and oh, yeah. get scores. You know, I would pull Nine, over seven, the six, one, three, one, three. absolutely. You know, I'd pull over the side of the road, and of course, I didn't want to wait until WINS came on with you know their fifteen minutes and forty-five minutes after the hour sports report. It was whoever it was John Montone or somebody was doing uh, sports reports. Uh, so yeah, it's it certainly has changed quite a bit. You mentioned uh, the comment about fantasy sports, and, and that was something I wanted to talk about as a play-by-play, you know, individual, and you work for ESPN. Um, as part of your job, is there conversation around talking about fantasy and gambling on the sportscast? Are they asking you not to talk about it? Do you ignore something that's so prevalent? How do you think about it?
0: It's actually changed in the last year or two, just with the proliferation of legal sports betting in what, about two thirds of our states now, you can bet legally on games. So yeah, I mean, now it's not nearly as taboo as it used to be. I mean the NFL and you know some of these leagues they're actually entering into business partnerships with gambling entities now whereas you know 5 years ago they still talked about that as if that was like the third rail like don't go near that we don't talk gambling fantasy less so i mean because I, you'll definitely give the statistics for players because you know that there are people out there that must have them on their fantasy team and then are you know interested but I don't talk specifically about, you know, so-and-so's, you know, got however many catches for yards, and this is what it equates in fantasy points. But, I mean, if you, you know, if you got a team that's like a 12-point underdog and it's a 10-point game with five minutes to go, the outcome might basically be determined. But you know there's still a segment of the audience out there that's very interested in what might happen over the next five minutes, not for who might win the game. That might be a foregone conclusion, but what the final score is going to be, you better believe it. It's definitely much more acceptable to be in our chair now and talk about that kind of stuff as opposed to what it was, say, not even five or six years ago. Right.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, I don't know too many people watching football games nowadays that, you know, are not some way, you know, vested in, in the outcome of, you know, how many carries and, and all the fantasy statistics. So it, it's, sure. it's interesting. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Talk about, let's go back into uh, to college uh, basketball. So you're, you're currently doing Big 12 basketball, right?
0: Basically, yeah. Monday nights uh, during the season, I will um, almost always be assigned to the Big 12. There's like that big Monday package, and we're the second half of the doubleheader uh, in the Big 12. But I work with Dick Vitale, generally speaking, on Saturdays, and he bounces from – league to league based on the matchup that, you know, kind of warrants him being there. So I will find out what game that I'm doing with him, you know, sometimes a week or two out, sometimes longer, but, you know, we could be in the SEC, we could be in the big 12, we could be in the ACC. I mean, it's, it's an odd week where we're not doing a game that doesn't somehow involve a Kansas, a Duke, a North Carolina, a Kentucky, you know, Auburn's been a big team the last few years. I mean, you know, usually one of those teams is somehow involved in the game.
1: All right. And so where I was going is you, you've had the opportunity to work in some great arenas. Yes. Is there a particular arena or two where you just say, geez, it's a great place to call a game? Yeah, I mean, I've been to a lot of them that are great. I mean, great. Like the Big Ten,
0: I did five right. or six years in the Big Ten on weekends. So I've been to Breslin at Michigan State you know, Assembly Hall at Indiana, you know, Cole at uh, Wisconsin. I mean, those are some great places to go to do games. And um, even over the past few years, there are some basketball atmospheres that have taken off at some places like Florida and Auburn where, I mean, it's it's a madhouse. They're great places to go do games. But the two that really leap out obviously are Cameron for Duke and Allen Fieldhouse for Kansas. I mean, those are – you know, if I was going to tell – a college basketball fan you know I want to go to one place or two places you know baseball fan you're going to go to Fenway and you're going to go to Wrigley I mean I'm going to send you to those two places so you can go see them and see what the whole scene is all about if I'm going to send a college basketball fan to a game you want to go to a Duke game at Cameron and you want to go see a, a Kansas game at Allen Fieldhouse
1: all right do you feed off the crowd you know while you're in sure. you know when you're
0: right Sure. I mean, you you know, one of the biggest challenges I had transitioning from radio to TV is understanding how valuable it can be to lay out. You know, when the crowd is going absolutely ballistic, th- there's no reason to talk. Just let the crowd go ballistic and let the players play and then punctuate it at the end of whatever happens, if need be. But, you know, yeah, laying out and letting the crowd be the crowd to me. I mean, when I'm watching at home, that's one of the best parts of, you know, those big moments in games. All
1: right. So, you know, college sports has has so many interesting issues. You know, one of them, you know, which, you know, seems to crop up every year is the concept of paying student athletes and, and doing it, you know, uh, within, you know, some guidelines from the NCAA. Uh, do you have a point of view? Well, I mean, now that they've legalized,
0: generally speaking, the name and likeness exception, that's going to be legalized cheating. I mean, it's something that's always been there. I mean, it's not, you know, you talk to coaches and players and you watch any of these 30 for 30s, watch the Eric Dickerson 30 for 30, you know, where, you know, Texas A&M delivered him a gold Trans Am in his driveway and everyone called it the Trans A&M. I mean, you know, look, like the worst kept secret in the world back in the, the days of the 70s, 80s, early 90s was that these guys were getting definitely the $100 handshake is not a new thing in college sports. Um, but now that they're allowing them to be able to be paid for their name and likeness, you know, I'm going to wonder what is going to prevent a booster from a particular program to say to the three best recruits in whatever sport it might be, football, basketball, whatever, hey, three best recruits, how about I pay each of you $500,000 to appear on my billboard for my car dealership that I just bought that's five miles out of town? And maybe he's going to sell $100,000 worth of cars for his $1.5 million billboard. But what does he care? This is just a legalized way of letting that booster give these kids money that he was always looking for ways to give them anyway because they're tied in with these programs. They want these kids to come to their schools. So, you know, I don't think it changes a whole lot outside of just changing the way in some cases that it's done.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely uh, uh, something that's interesting to watch to see how it continues to evolve. Um, you know, you talked earlier about um, you know wanting to you know always strive for um, you know something bigger and and better. So, w- what what is bigger and better for you? You know, do you aspire to do TV uh, for football, for example?
0: Sure. I mean, I think the NFL on television is probably the pinnacle of our business from a play-by-play standpoint. But if I'm number four on college football, someday I'd like to be number one and call the college football, you know, the national championship game. Um, I would love to call a Super Bowl on television. I don't think Jim Nance and Joe Buck are going anywhere anytime soon. But, you know, I mean, to me, as long as you are, like, once I stop striving to try to get promoted, to do bigger, to do better, then... I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm stopping what my kind of internal motivation is to do a really good job. And maybe I'll feel differently 10 years from now. I'm 48 going on 49 years old. Maybe when you're 58, 59 years old, you know, and you're a few years away from potentially being able to call it quits or pare down or maybe pick your schedule, do a little bit more of what you want to do. I'll feel differently at that point. But right now, I'm still every bit as determined to try and climb the ladder as I always was.
1: Right. And, and as you refine, you know, your craft, you know, you're, you're, you want to move up. And so I imagine wanting to move up means getting better. However, that's measured. You know, are there people that you watch and say, you know, there's, you, you don't have to give names if you don't want to, but are there people that you watch out there in the way they deliver the information that, you know, you say, geez, I need to, to follow that person, you know, more specifically?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've always tried to guard against imitating, Mm. you know, I mean, I'm like to me, if once you start imitating someone else's style, you've lost yourself. Like I'm going to call the game the way I call the game. And that's just going to be the way I do it. Now there are definitely influences that you can have. Like, You can hear how other guys call games, some phrases they use, you know, some of the things they might concentrate on. When I was first doing baseball, and we were talking to Gary Collin, and I think Gary's about as good as you can get at, at calling a baseball game. And on top of that, <clears throat> there's a whole generation of Met fans that are growing up knowing Gary as the TV voice of the team. But for those of us that remember Gary when he was doing the radio, I think he was better at radio than he is at TV. And I think TV-wise, he's as good as anybody in the country. That's how good he was at radio. And listening to him Like, just sequentially put a call together. Because there's a lot that can happen in baseball. You know, you get runners on first and second, and someone rips a ball down the right field line. Now, in what order are you going to tell me what's happening? The ball's fair down the right field line. The runners are scoring. The right fielder is going over to scoop the ball up. The cutoff man is getting in position. Here comes the throw. Here come the guys around the bases. So-and-so scores. There's a rhythm to baseball. Where unless you've done a million innings, it's not something you can kind of just do without thinking about it. And so I would listen to some of the guys that were really good at baseball, trying to pick up kind of sequentially what they would concentrate on in a call. I've picked up with some football announcers the fact that, again, being a radio guy, radio in my DNA, I used to call when I first started doing television. I thought I needed to identify like every tackler. You don't. You know, a guy goes up the middle for a three-yard gain, it's okay to say so-and-so up the middle for three. And then just get out and let your analyst talk. I learned that by watching guys do television and real recognizing that when I'm watching a game on TV, if they don't give me the tackler every single time, I'm not missing it as a viewer. So why do I feel the need to do it as a game caller? So just things like that I've picked up over the years. But I don't think – like I'm not going to go on the air and try to sound like Marv Albert. To me, that would be contrived. I don't sound yep. like him. I don't call a game like him, nor should I try to. And, and I don't expect some 20-year-old that's listening to me on the radio that they should try to call a game like me. They shouldn't. They should do it the way they do it. You know, call the game the way you call the game. And if someone doesn't like it, well, then tell them to take a long walk off a short pier because you're <laughs> going to call the game the way you call the game, and that's that.
1: All right. So uh, we're winding down towards the end, but I have a couple more questions. Um, wh- what's your sense of, uh, you know, the kind of the newer platforms uh, that are out there that are, are trying to become participants in in streaming sports? You know, YouTube, you see games, you know, now you see some Facebook games. Wh- what's your sense of, uh, of that? Is there real value in being able to stream games there? Will people consume it that way? Sure.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that that's just the uh, the natural evolution of the technology that we're I mean, where we're going. Like how many people are cutting cords? How many people are finding different ways the the numbers that ESPN tells us about um where you're getting you're getting viewership in the hundreds of thousands on phones, on the app for games that you're calling. Now you're still getting viewership sometimes in the millions for football games on over the air on the television, but there are definitely you know, big chunks of the audience now that are out and about or somewhere in their house choosing to watch the game on a device. And as the devices get better and higher quality and and bigger, easier to operate, you know, even more portable. I mean, it's it's only natural that you would think that the the evolution of the business would be more in that direction. But I I don't see, at least in my career, of calling games, I don't think that's going to radically change how we do our jobs, whether I'm calling a game for MSG in New York, on the radio for, you know, 98.7 for the Jets on ESPN or on Facebook, they're still hiring me to be there to call the game, add to it, supplement it, and hopefully add something that someone at home can't see on their own or can't necessarily appreciate. So, you know, to me, that's just the vehicle with which the games are delivered I don't know that that changes a whole lot about how we do our jobs to broadcast the games themselves. It's just a different way for someone to consume them.
1: Right. And, you know, you mentioned this earlier about, you know, getting into sports. You know, so many people want to do it. You know, it's like anything else, you know, somewhat limited and, and not easy. But what would you tell somebody that, you know, has, is a sports fan, they want to get into, uh, into whether it be sports announcing or in some other aspects of the sports industry? What guidance do you give people like that? It's start as early as you can, as
0: young as you can. And when I say young, I mean, you know, college, don't, I'm not, I'm not saying drop out of school. I mean You want to go to college, you want to finish your, you know, finish your college degree, uh, be a communications major, be a broadcasting major if necessary. While you're in college, certainly your junior and senior year, you want to do internships, if you can. I mean, to me, that's the jumping off point of really learning Um, how to do what we do and also making the connections so that when you get out of school, you've got someone to call to say, Hey, you know, if you don't have a job for me, hopefully you know someone that does. That's how I got my first job was through the internships that I did. And then just never say no. I mean, just understand, you're not going to get paid much of anything. You're going to be working holidays nights and weekends, and you could potentially end up anywhere in the country. And if any of those three things, that you're like, oh, I like my weekends. I like my holidays. I like being around my friends. Ooh, you know, I got a buddy that's going to go work for, you know, an accounting firm. He's going to make 125 right out of college. These people are paying me 30. I don't think I can do that. Then you're right. Then you can't do it because there are 50 people lined up behind you that are going to be willing to go probably for even less money than that to get their foot in the door. And that's really what it's about. Just don't say no. Get your foot in the door somewhere. Just get a job, any job somewhere. And then once you're in the building around the decision makers, you might find your way on the air. You might find an off-air job that appeals to you even more. But it's just about getting your first foot in the door in the industry and then just being a really hard worker. And just don't, don't say no. You're always available, whatever they need. And hopefully at some point, if you appreciate the effort that I'm you know, giving you, boss, Here's what I would really like a chance to do. If there's ever an opportunity to get a weekend show or do some updates or go cover a game, something like that, if you're around and you work hard and you do a good job, it's amazing how magically those opportunities somehow present themselves to you once you're there.
1: Yeah, it's like any other industry. You just have to you know, keep working at it. So uh, this is all the time we have, Bob. This was really interesting. I could probably have spent another hour uh, asking you questions, but um, I know you're, you're busy and I've taken a, a lot of your time. Really good information. Uh, it's great to uh, hear your voice. And, and, and again, thank you very much for doing this with me. Oh, no problem, Mark. Good to talk to you. All right. Stay well, buddy. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Bob Weschusen for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Bob's success was helped tremendously by the internships that he had. Be aggressive in searching and finding something that puts you in position for your career aspirations. If you're in college, having one as a rising sophomore is not too early. And if you're in a position to create an internship for a college student, please do so. Number two, strive to get better. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to be bigger and better if you cannot find that path in your current role Do not be afraid to look outside and find other opportunities. And number three, know when to speak and when to listen. Bob explained what it's like as an announcer doing a game and hearing the crowd go wild. He's figured out that the crowd is telling the story, and he doesn't need to add his commentary. We can all do better by being better listeners with our colleagues. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.